author Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us for another interview here on the Paul Leslie Hour. This time around, I'm pulling one out of the archives. This is an interview that I did with author John Barrett. It was originally broadcast on the radio on the FM dial in Charleston, South Carolina, which is just north of Savannah, Georgia. John Barrett is a fantastic author. He's best known for his best-selling nonfiction book entitled Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. has to be one of the best titles ever for a book. The book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is set in Savannah, Georgia. Savannah, Georgia is a very magical place if you haven't been there. The book was made into a movie directed by Clint Eastwood in 1997. It's been 25 years since the release of the book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. It's a very historically significant book, and I believe it is destined to be considered a classic. It became a New York Times bestseller for an astonishing 216 weeks. In fact, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is the longest-standing New York Times bestseller of all time. Isn't that something? It's a fantastic book. If you haven't read it, I suggest you pick it up. Let me know what you think. John Barron also wrote a book called The City of Falling Angels, which was published in 2005. We get into that a little bit as well. John Barron and I talk about all kinds of things. Savannah, Georgia, of course. Venice, I think you're going to find this interview with John Barrett to be very interesting. I know I did. When I think about interviews that make me feel lucky, I inevitably come to this one. Here it is, folks, my interview with John Barrett. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest is author John Barrett. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. I wanted to kind of start this with a quote in Mark Twain's book, Following the Equator. He says, Truth is stranger than fiction, but it is because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. What do you think about that? Well, that gets into the whole question of what's what's fiction and what's nonfiction. It, it has a lot to do with point of view. I mean, you can get uh, five very good writers to write a story about an event that happened in front of all of them, and you get five different stories. So. Is it inventing when one story is different slightly or a great deal from another or not? Is it, is which, which one of them is fiction, which one of them is nonfiction? Are they a blend? This argument will go on forever. What makes a good book, in your opinion? What makes a good book? Ah, from whose point of view again? I mean, the author intends to accomplish one thing or another, to tell a story in the best possible way, to uncover a truth or to entertain. So whatever you start out wanting to do, for me, it's a combination of telling a real story and entertaining. I'm really kind of very, very intent that uh, every page of a book I write should be entertaining. And I use the word entertaining in the broadest sense, meaning to seize a reader's interest and hold it, just as you would an audience in a theater. So what makes a good book for me is one that accomplishes 
telling the story that I want to tell in a way that I believe is the true story and keeping everybody interested throughout the entire book so no one puts it down. They can't wait to get to the next page. You just said entertainment. Is there anything else that you're looking for your readers to get? Aspect, now again, I, entertainment is a broad... I mean, it's not just what you see on TV. I mean, it's not just entertainment in, in, in that narrow sense. So if you know, I step back a little bit, I would want a reader to have an awakening of some sort, perhaps, an introduction to their uh, culture that the reader had never really understood before. So, I mean, there are a lot of different things that can come under this heading, what I want the reader to gain. I've heard different authors say different things about what the experience of writing a book feels like. Everything from a fever, something that's very, very exciting, to something that's painful and tedious. It's all of those things. Because when you sit down to write, you realize that uh, all right, you're talking about a, a specific scene you're about to write, and there are infinite numbers of ways of expressing it. In other words, what words do you use? What, you know, how do you, where do you begin? Where do you go from the first sentence to the next? It's really an infinite choice. That is kind of unnerving. And it can set writers back. It can make them slow down and stop for a while. Think. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's unnerving. It's, it's exciting when you find that the images are coming together, the story is coming together, the pace of it is right. For me, the style of writing is important, too, because it, it suggests a rhythm. I write so that you can read aloud what I've written. And a reader may not realize that, but the sentences flow in a certain way that a reader can almost hear, even though they may be speed reading, they can hear it. So all of these are considerations. I will say that the one marvelous thing about writing is when you are struggling to make it all come together, and suddenly it does, either a chapter or an entire book, there is an audible pop and you can feel it and hear it almost. And that's the greatest sensation, uh, I think, as a writer I've had. What is the biggest myth about writing? I don't know where to begin. I mean, uh, I don't know what myths do you mean. Uh, I, I don't think of writing or the idea of writing as being a myth. But, I mean, you mean inspiration? I mean, there are some myths. I mean, Tuma Capote swears that. He had a dream, and he woke up and wrote the first paragraph of uh, Other Voices, Other Rooms. Almost like Coleridge, you know, did in, in the Kubla Khan. That's, I believe, maybe a myth. There's a lot of places that have, you know, something that you would describe like a feeling, or I guess you could say an atmosphere. Savannah, Georgia definitely, definitely has an atmosphere. How would you personally describe the feeling of Savannah? Savannah uh, had the feeling of an enclosed community, enclosed universe shut off from the rest of the world. There was no other place as far as Savannah was concerned when I was living there and, and riding Midnight. The, as one of the people who lived there, born and raised there, it said to me, we are impervious to outside influences. Which is what reason, uh, one reason why people, uh, commercial people from the outside would want to test market 
their uh, products in Savannah because they were a unique community without any outside influence. That's that's a major thing. That it is a uh, cloistered society and self-enclosed. It's surrounded physically by great gaps of geography. I mean, there's the ocean on one side. There are marshes and piney woods on all the other sides between Savannah and any other inhabited place. There's a, a highway from Savannah to Atlanta, Highway six, Route 16, that's been described as the loneliest highway in America because nobody bothers to go from one to the other. People in Savannah, many of them who've lived there all their lives, have never been to Charleston, South Carolina, which is an hour and 50 minutes away. The same is true of Charlestonians. They don't much care to go to Savannah. They don't think about it. But Savannah doesn't think about the outside world, is what I'm trying to tell you. And that affects everything. What is the most surprising thing that you've learned about people through your profession of being a writer? As a writer, trying to write about people, uh, immediately, in, well, what happens right away is people don't want to cooperate. They don't want to be in a book. But as you start working, time goes on, suddenly people do want to be in your book. And they, then they begin to act out in front of you so that you will put them in your book. People warm to the idea of being written about, although at first they may be resistant to the notion. What do you think the initial resistance is because of? Well, I mean, people know they don't have any control about, uh, over what you're going to write about, and they suspect you have an agenda. I think I feel more comfortable with a writer. They don't sense an agenda. Then they're more comfortable being themselves, and they're very sure that you'll pick up on all their good qualities. And maybe you do, and maybe the qualities they think are good, nah, you don't agree with, but you, they don't know this. But I would say when subjects become comfortable with a, a writer, they loosen up. And don't uh, and they forget that the tape recorder's on too. At first, they're aware of it. I always make it uh, either I put the tape recorder in plain sight, and if it's not in plain sight, I have a pad and pencil out so they know what they're saying is being recorded in some form or other. But people are, after a few minutes, they forget there's even a tape recorder in plain sight. And if you can get to that point, uh, then you're you're at least handling the interview properly and making people feel at home and responsive to your questions. And actually, the best thing that can happen is that there is some deep, dark secret that you happen to know about in advance that you want this person to talk about. You've been doing it right when the secret spills out without having been asked about. When that's happened a number of times uh, in my course of interviewing people. I, I come close to the subject, do not ask it, and the answer comes out without you know, any prodding from me. So these tape recordings that you have made of the people that you've spoken with, have you kept all of them? Yes. Do you ever listen? Oh, occasionally when there's a reason to, but there are some of them very long. I mean, they're an hour and a half, two hours, so I don't listen to them uh, you know, for my entertainment. But I do sometimes want to hear again what a certain person has said, and so I, I can get, I can just listen to the tape all over again. I've never had to listen to a tape to defend what I've written, although I could, and I have the tapes 
so that, that it's possible that they could be used in my defense as a writer and that I got that I didn't misquote somebody. Asking you earlier about what you've learned about people through your profession, what have you learned about yourself as a result of what you do? Well, it might seem strange to say this, but uh, I'm basically shy. And I basically am withdrawn and not much of a people person. So why have I chosen this career of writing about people? It's because I, I do, I find it interesting, although I, I am reluctant to go push myself into situations where I have to talk and mingle with people that much. But so what I've done is I've forced myself to engage people. And it's been a learning thing for me on how, in how to do it. My father was a salesman. and he, was a, he could talk to anybody. And I've learned that so can I. If I am uh, writing a, a book or an article that involves certain characters, you have to get information from them. You have to go and talk to them, not just talk, not just ask questions, but engage them in a conversation. It's not an interrogation. It's got to be a conversation, which means that the interviewer has to give as well as get. And it's been, a, so it really, I have to force myself to do it. I've become more or less adroit at doing it because I made myself do it. That's what I've learned about myself. I have an ability to, uh, to engage with people that I, didn't, I wasn't so sure I did have. The people who read your books, when they have written you letters, fans of yours, do you read the letters that people write? I certainly do. I do, and I answer most of them if I can. At first, I was spending an awful lot of time because I was getting a lot of letters when the book first came out. But yes, I absolutely read them. What's the most surprising thing that someone, not just in a letter, but anyone you've encountered that read the book, that really loved it, what's the most surprising thing someone has said to you, or memorable? Every letter probably has something in it that uh, is news to me. Um, I'm just trying to think what would be the most surprising. I would say, but I can't think of an example, that somebody wrote to me and told me something about this story, a character that I hadn't been aware of, and it was an eye-opening piece of information. What not surprises me, but what I was pleased about was when people understood and said this to me in letters, that the, really the main character of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil was Savannah Georgia, which is absolutely true. The, the town was a personi- you know, personification of Savannians. And it was, in fact, the main character of the book. Yes, there were a couple of letters I got from people who said that they read the book to a dear one who was dying in the hospital. And the person who was listening on uh, his or her death, but I was laughing and enjoying the book. Now that, I'll never forget that, two people wrote from various parts of the country, uh, two different parts of the country, and uh, that was the most surprising and rewarding, I have to say. Wow. Do you think about the reader when you're writing? All the time. All the time. It's, it's like a comedian thinking about the audience. Are they going to laugh? Are they going to be interested? Are they going to be bored? Are they going to follow what you're saying? If you have, for instance, my second book was set in Venice, and there were an awful lot of Italian names. And American readers might have gotten confused after a while, not being used to, to reading so many Italian names, and, and names of places as well. 
and there were pieces of the lingo also I put in. So I was concerned uh, that, and there were awful lot of characters, because both books had a lot of characters. Always concerned that the reader not lose the thread of the story. Who's doing what? And when somebody pops up in a chapter, did they remember this person or not? Do I have to throw in a couple of words to remind them who this person is? So the answer is definitely yes. Always think of the reader. And don't assume the reader's following that closely, but make it, make it easy for them to, to keep the thread of the thought. You just mentioned Venice a moment ago and Savannah. Very interesting places. What attracts you most to a place? Well, Savannah and Venice have great similarities. They're both on the water. They're both cloistered places. I mean, I told you how Savannah was cloistered, and, and, and Venice is on a group of islands in the middle of a lagoon. And Venice is even more separated from the rest of uh, the surrounding area than Savannah is because Venice has its own language. It's called Venetian. It's not Italian. And it's a dialect. Whenever you, however, whenever you refer to Venetian as a dialect, you will be corrected. They'll say Venetian is not a dialect. It's a language all on its own. So they're very much apart from the rest of Italy. I mean, they feel different from and better than the people who live on the mainland only a few miles away on the, on the shore of the lagoon. They have their own sense of humor, their own language, as I said, and their own cuisine, apart from what we think of as Italian cuisine. So those two places have a uniqueness about them, and I prefer to write about a place that has uniqueness and is, you know, what's the difference between Cincinnati and St. Louis or something like that. There probably is a lot of difference, but the way I think of it is Savannah and Venice are distinct places with distinct personalities and atmospheres. And I like that. As, uh, I mean, as if, I were, if I were setting a, a play in a place, I would want a, a very evocative setting. So you can't do any better than Savannah on the one hand and, and Venice on the other. Was it very intimidating to write The City of Falling Angels after having written Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? Well, yes. The expectation of the readers was very high. They expected to be entertained in the very same way. And I just had to finally go ahead and write. I, I, it took me a while to figure out what to do and how to approach it and all of that. I picked a, t a city that I thought was unique in its own way, and certainly Venice is. And then I simply followed my nose and right a few days before I arrived in Venice to poke around. I mean, I knew Venice pretty well from having gone there a number of times. That's why I picked it. But I didn't have a story in mind. I just wanted to go and see it. And I knew some people there, and I was going to go you know, look around. Just before I arrived, days before, after, well after I had planned to go there, the Fenice Opera House burned to the ground in Venice. And it didn't occur to me right then and there that it would be part of my book or even the central feature of my book, which it ended up being. Because I figured that well, the world will know all about this. There's nothing, going to be, nothing left to write about this uh, event 
in my book, so I kept looking. So six months on, I realized that the rest of the world wasn't paying attention anymore. Never really got the whole story, which was continuing to unfold in Venice, which was that it was not just a fire because of uh, an electrical spark or something. That it was arson. Uh, it was a criminal deed. And so I followed that all the way through to the end and pulled in other characters, other people I met, kind of made them part of the story. And that's how that happened. But I, I, I'd long since gotten over my, my terror of writing a second book after midnight. And I just threw myself into the task of, of writing about Venice and the Finitri Opera House and the various characters I met who were measured up to my standard of craziness and uniqueness. Our special guest is best-selling author John Barron. Where could you see yourself writing about next? I've been spending the last five years in New Orleans. Well, as soon as I tell people that I'm, I have an apartment in New Orleans, and I go there, in fact, I'm going there in 10 days again, they say, oh, what a perfect place. There's so many crazy people there. It's just going to be so easy for you. Well, it doesn't turn out to be. Because a lot of people, I mean, there, as you know, New Orleans has its own unique personality. God knows. I mean, it's a place of constant celebration, never mind Katrina, that's all, that's long over with. But there are people dressed up all the time, they're in costume, they have parades constantly, they, it's just, you know, and people come from all over the country to, to celebrate and, and, and party, so there's that going on. But it's also a very complex city with various neighborhoods that are unique in, of themselves. There's not many people understand that the uh, Garden District, for instance, has some of the most beautiful homes in America. Many, many, many of them. And there are, there's Treme, uh, about which there was a, or has been a series on cable television consisting of a very interesting and dynamic community of Afro African Americans. There are many communities in New Orleans, it's a bigger place than one thinks, but that's a place I. I've been looking, but what the problem is for me is that um, everybody knows there are crazy people acting out in New Orleans, and it's not enough for me just to seize on a few of them. Uh, they have to be, <laughs> their personalities have to be fresh and, and not, not predictable. So I have found, what happened when I got to uh, New Orleans, incidentally, is um, I was there for some time when the oil spill occurred offshore in the Gulf of Mexico when the Deepwater Horizon blew up. I've been focusing on that and the people around it. So I can do my normal thing of uh, living there in New Orleans, following this story and pulling in characters who may not have anything to do with the oil spill, but who are compelling enough to sort of cover and include in the, in the mix. But the story itself of the... Uh, explosion and how, why and how it happened. It was really kind of marvelous. But there are pitfalls there, too, and I, I, I've fallen into some of them. One of them is to get too involved in the legalities in the court case. But, I, but if I stick with the um, simply the characters involved, it's like crossing the water on stepping stones that you go across. Uh, don't fall into the quagmire of the legal case. It can be very boring. But the personality and what happened to people because of the oil spill and the dynamics of the oil spill itself, 
really quite compelling. So that's been taking 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 me a lot of time, and I've been very slow about it. But I know that there's a book there. I just hope I can pull it out and do it. New Orleans, certainly a city full of eccentric people. Time magazine said about you that you're a weirdo magnet. What is I'm it that a, makes that so? State of, they said I was a state-of-the-art weirdo magnet. Uh-huh. Well, what happens is that when people... From my first book, it became apparent that I was attracted to eccentric people. So I, when, I, when I found them, I focused on them and wrote about them. And some of the most charming people I've ever met were these eccentrics in Savannah. It gave me a reputation as someone who is interested in, in eccentric people. And so when I went, for instance, to Venice, people would point me in the direction of this or that uh, character because they knew they were the kind of people I would like to write about. One of them was a man I actually met at a banquet in one of those great palazzos. And he said to me that he was one of the world's great chefs. I said, oh, really? Uh, what's your specialty? And he said, rat poison. Yeah, I said, oh, really? He said, I make, I make the most effective rat poison in the world. And it's the biggest selling rat poison in the world. And he said, you know, what I've discovered and why I, I, I make the best rat poison because other makers of rat poison simply make poison and put it out there for the rats to eat. But what I do is I, I include in my poison the food that the rats of any given place like to eat because garbage really is my main competitor. Rats love garbage. And if I can, if I'm doing rat poison for a Germany, for the German market, I put pork fat in my rat poison. And that way, I can compete against normal garbage and get the rats to eat my poison and die. And in France, I mix it with butter. In America, I mix it with chocolate and popcorn, etc., etc. And he went on and on. And you know, people are fascinated by rats. They're disgusted by them. They fear them. But the people at this table where he started talking, at first, turned away and disgusted, but by the end of it, his talking to me about rat poisoning, everybody was paying attention and listening. So he, he made the book. He had nothing to do with the Finice Opera House fire, but there's no way I could have left him out of the book. Hmm. Well, what person, as a result of your writing, whether you're talking about Midnight or this the City of Falling Angels, what person would you say has been your favorite that you encountered? Well... I hate to do that, but since you asked me, I have to. The favorite one is Chablis, the um, black drag queen from Midnight. There are a lot of favorite characters, let me tell you. I mean, in that book, there were three main favorite characters. One of them was the protagonist, Jim Williams, who shot and killed the young Danny Hansford. He was one of the best interviews I ever had. He was very, very, very clever, very funny, a very entertaining person. You know, he was a marvelous person to focus on. And the other, the third character was uh, Joe Odom, who was uh, a charming young man who played the piano magnificently. And he he sang, he played the piano, he worked in the piano bar. He was just a delightful person. He had people over at his house all the time. He sort of conducted an open house. It was very, very typical of Savannah's party atmosphere. Joe Odom was a very attractive guy. And so those three people created the mood, really, of Savannah that I wrote about. Jim Williams, a sort of 
acerbic, brilliant, dark, but fascinating man with, with a sense of humor. And Joe Odom, sense of humor, great entertainer and person, a party person people person, and the Lady Chablis, who was a, a marvelous sense of irony, and was unique, as far as I can see, uh, among uh, what, what is called drag queens. Or, I don't know, that's probably a term she doesn't like. Anyhow, those three characters, but particularly Lady Chablis, and Lady Chablis has turned out to be the most popular character of either book. I read the quote from you about the first time you flew to Savannah that you realized you could fly for the price of a meal at one of the very trendy restaurants in New York. So what do you think about the restaurants in Savannah, Georgia? When I was living there, now this is interesting, I was living there in the 80s it was, there were very few restaurants and they, and they closed at 8 o'clock. If you didn't get in there before 8 o'clock, you didn't eat. Uh, and there were chain restaurants and there were little ones and but the you know there wasn't much in the way of restaurants to speak of a couple of good ones and that's about it now since that period of time and since i wrote my book there have been a lot of very very terrific restaurants opening i went to one about a year ago called the gray we got written up in the new york times of all things and the Gray is a restaurant that had been uh, within the place that had been the Greyhound bus terminal, and it was turned into a really great-looking restaurant. But before it had become the Gray, the last few years I lived in Savannah, it had become, after having been the, the Greyhound bus terminal, it had become the Metropole, which was a very sort of hole-in-the-wall restaurant, which very cleverly took this... Uh, Greyhound bus terminal turned it into a restaurant, but it was, you know, unfinished decor. It was uh, not at all fancy, and it was interesting cooking, sort of home cooking, but nothing special, but I kind of enjoyed it. Since I finished the book and came back to New York, it was taken over by some well-held people, and about a year or so ago became The Gray, and it's a major, major good restaurant, and a lot of good restaurants there now. So I... My experience with restaurants in Savannah from my period living in there, living there is not much I can't tell you about, but since then, there have been a lot of very, very decent restaurants that have opened up there. This question comes from Ross Kelly, who is the son of Miss Emma Kelly. I know, Ross. Yeah. And, well, to give the listeners out there a little bit of the info about this, the Meta Book was released last year. And it's a, this is a digital platform format or an app where the readers can kind of experience some of the multimedia, some multimedia experiences. Mr. Kelly wants to know what your thoughts are regarding the re-release of the Metabook format. And what do you think about that? Well, they had to get permission from me and I gave permission. I think they did a spectacular job. This app includes not just an ebook, it does have an ebook in it, you can read it on your you know, on your tablet or whatever. And it has not just a recorded version with a narrator reading the whole thing. It's it's a recorded drama, dramatic version with eighteen actors and actresses taking various roles and there's sound effects and all of that. So it's really a superb audio book as well. On top of that, there are interviews with me 
and some of the characters, and there are features, visual features, uh, involving some aspect of the book, the story, the characters, and the uh, the city of Savannah. So it's it's a pretty well-rounded multimedia version of the book, and I'm all for it, and I hope it does well. He uh, he sends his regards and the family as well. Well, I love the, the Kellys. Emma Kelly was one of my favorite characters as well. She she was called the Lady of Six Thousand Songs, and she uh, that's because she was named that by Johnny Mercer, who was a friend of hers. Johnny Mercer was the great American songwriter uh, from Savannah. She did know 6,000 songs, the words and music of 6,000 songs. They figured that out after he tested her on various songs. She was a great lady, a great lady. What are your most vivid memories of her? Well, I picture her seated behind the piano with this great uh, turban of black hair, uh, which wound around on top of her head, and she, she held in place with two lacquered Chinese chopsticks. And she sang, and she banged away at the piano, and she uh, she knew everybody's favorite song. When somebody would walk in the front door, she would start playing their favorite song. She knew what they were. And she was a hub of joy and entertainment wherever she went. And she didn't just appear at Emma's piano bar in, uh, in Savannah. She would show up at Sunday schools uh, on Sunday, and she'd do church picnics and Kiwanis Club meetings, and she would be playing her piano and singing at all these functions, social and religious school functions, as well as the odd piano bar at night. In the motion picture Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, what did you think about the inclusion of all of the work from the great songwriter Johnny Mercer in the movie. I thought it was quite appropriate because that's, he's a Savannian and the, the, he, they talk about him all the time. There's a Johnny Mercer concert hall there. There's a statue of, of, of him. And it, and it makes perfect sense. We also, after the book came out, the, the singer Mar- Margaret Whiting called me and asked if she could do a cabaret evening called Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil with Johnny Mercer's songs. And her idea was to have readings from the book of about two minutes each, very brief, and, but, and then interspersed with songs, Johnny Mercer's songs. And we had some terrific musicians, I mean, Jerry Mulligan and Bobby Short and various other people, very top of the line here in New York. And it was such a success at Lincoln Center when it was on that one night in 1994 or 5, I don't remember, that it toured the country two or three times to sell out houses every time. As a writer, what do you think of his lyrics? Well, he's been referred, I mean, he's one of the great American lyric, lyricists. He, his, his lyrics are sheer poetry. Yeah, I think he, he, he's as good as the very best that we've are, ever had. Was there a particular song in the motion picture that you thought was the best? Those songs were pretty much in the background, so I don't even remember which of all the ones that Clint Eastwood chose. The one that his daughter sang, I don't remember. I really don't remember. 
I don't have favorite ones of his. I mean, there's uh, one, And the Angels Sing, which is a marvelous song. And in fact, that title of that song is on his gravestone, carved on his gravestone in Savannah in Bonaventure Cemetery. I love that one. I really love one that's not very well known called Pardon My Southern Accent, which is a lovely tune and lyrics. He wrote both in that in that case. He wrote primarily he wrote lyrics for songs to other people's music, but in that one he wrote the words and the music. But uh, I think Any Angel Sing has to be one of his best, but he's an awful lot. And the Angels Sing is one of my all-time favorite songs. You hit it on the nose. <laughs> in fact, there's a musical in formation, in development now. At first, it was going to... And uh, in, in, uh, the, the script, the stage script, has been written by Alfred Urey, who wrote uh, Driving Miss Daisy. So he's written the script, and the music is going to be original music, but at first, they were going to use Johnny Mercer songs exclusively. But it soon became apparent that when you're doing a drama on stage, it's not like a cabaret where there doesn't have to be a continuous story. But when you're doing a drama on stage, the songs have to carry the story along. And the Johnny Mercer songs did not quite fit the story, even though they are the embodiment of Savannah in some way. So after five versions of the script, everything was coming together, but the songs didn't quite gel with the story. So, except for two of them. Two of the songs did. So the decision was made that they would do original music and maybe one or two Johnny Mercer songs just to just to give him just a sort of a doff of the hat doff of the hat to Johnny Mercer. But those two seemed to fit into the script pretty well. And the others would be original songs was the decision. So that's all being done now. Do you ever think about your books being read perhaps 100 years from now, 200 years from now? I don't know about 200. I wonder if it's going to be anybody reading anything 200 years from now. But I think of them being read after I'm gone. But for how much longer after I'm gone, who knows? I know they will outlive me because there's something like three and a half million of them in this country that were sold. And you figure that they haven't all been pulped yet. So they're, they're lying around and on shelves in various places. So they'll be here after I'm gone. I haven't given it much thought, but occasionally it occurs to me that it will, they'll be around when I'm gone. What is the best thing about being John Barron? Oh, my God. Uh, I would have said having a unique name is one, but I've discovered there are about 10 others in this country named John Barron, so that's not really true. What happened after, you know, after I became... Well known because of the book, people came up to me and said nice things. Basically, that's it. I don't get people coming up to me and berating me for what I've done. Hmm. Well, this is kind of an open stage kind of question. For anyone listening in, what would you say to them? Well, I would say stay tuned. I'm going to be as surprised as you all will be when, it, when, been, when and if there's something else. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, our special guest has been John Barrett. My last question. Who is John Barrett? John Barrett is someone who's been very lucky. When the turning point in my life, of course, is when Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil came out. Of course, a lot led up to that, which was that I was a 
a writer for es- writer and editor for Esquire magazine. I had written I had written material for Dick Cabot and David Frost on television interview programs. I had written articles, etc. And then finally, I decided to write a book. So all that led up to midnight. However, I had a lot of luck, and it was that um, the book was recognized by the publisher and very carefully marketed. They sent copies around, and it was picked up by Good Morning America. They did a, a, all together seven, I was on the show seven times. All of that helped a lot. And a lot of it is luck. I mean, because what if I'd had a publisher who loved it and just fluffed it when it came time to publish the thing, didn't get enough copies out, didn't get it publicized the right way, didn't bring it to the attention of people who are running Good Morning America, et cetera, and other programs and other outlets. Because, you know, it, the, the success of a book depends a lot on word of mouth, for sure, and, and, and mine's, you know, benefited a lot from word of mouth, but but you got to have the right kind of publisher who's, who's, who's going to give it a, a boost. And, and I did get a lot of help that way, and that's lucky. Also, when my book came out, there was a a, a very week it came out, there was uh, an earthquake in California which dominated the news and knocked every other author off TV shows and radio programs, and, except for me. And what happened was that there had been a lot, had been a lot of things recorded in advance. First of all, Good Morning America was one of them. And since it was already in the can, I wasn't canceled. Uh, it was delayed a day or so. And there was that was the winter when the book came out, when there were something like 17 snowstorms across America, no, mostly in the northern part and central part. And that shut down a lot of interviews that would have promoted various books. But I was at that point in the southern states doing interviews and not being canceled. I mean, the book had its its merits for sure, and I wouldn't say it doesn't, but it also was the beneficiary of a lot of lucky bricks. Well, sir, thank you very, very much. You've given very generously. It's been a pleasure. All right. Godspeed. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Zip, bip, bibbidi bop, boobity zing, dang, bong, chi, chi, cuddly, zing, bang, dun, cook. Goodbye.